Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Have you ever wondered if a shoulder plane is really the best tool for truing tenon shoulders? Do you want to know if you need to sand your projects after hand planing? Do you have questions about working with reclaimed wood? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 37 of the show for October 24th, 2018. Before we start today's show, I want to take a minute to thank our new patrons. Thanks to my friend Tim Morris, uh, Gray Keen, Rob Switzer, and Mike Holzauer for signing up to support the show. And thank you to all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. Your support helps to keep this thing going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So nothing much going on in the shop for me and uh, not too much progress on the cabin either. I dug a couple of uh, dug a couple of big holes in the front and the backyard for uh, concrete pads for the steps coming down from the, the uh, back deck and the front porch and uh, hoping to get those poured before the weather turns too cold here. Starting to get right on the borderline now, so uh, hopefully within the next week or two I'll get those pads poured and that should be almost it for the exterior work we should be ready to uh brave the uh brave the winter and and finish up the last few things on the inside uh while it, uh, before it gets too too cold. So let's get into our questions. Our first one comes from Jade Darenthal. Jay says I've cut some tenons on the stretchers for a Rubo style workbench I've been working on. I cut them with a cross cut and tenon back saws and then paired the cheek surface with a router plane for a close fit with the mortise. Is this the best way of doing it? The tenon shoulders are about three inches long by five-eighths of an inch wide, and the tenon is about two inches tall. To tighten up some of the gaps at the tenon shoulder, I've undercut the shoulder with a chisel. That has helped several of the joints. However, some of the other shoulder edges were not cut perfectly straight with the saw and so will not allow a tight fit. Thinking about buying a Lee Nielsen skew rabbit block plane or medium shoulder plane to straighten out these shoulders and get a tighter fit. Does this sound like a good approach, or is there another option I should be looking at? So let's uh, let's address your first question first. Um, cut the cut the cheeks with a crosscut tenon saw, and then pair the surface with a router plane. Uh, is this the best way of doing it? It's a way of doing it. Uh, I don't want to. I, I hate to say best for anything, right? Because the best for one person is not necessarily going to be the best for another, especially if. The other person doesn't even have a router plane. So um, it's certainly a good, reliable way of doing it. And by using the router plane, you're going to help to ensure that the cheeks of those tenons are perfectly parallel to the faces of the legs. So that's a, a, a great benefit of using that technique. So I would say uh, most definitely, you know, using that technique is a good way to go about it. As for the shoulder plane to help true up your shoulders, uh, I'll probably take some flack with this, but I'm going to say no. Um, I don't like planes for 
doing shoulder work at all. Um, I don't like shoulder planes. I had one. I had. Uh, I just recently sold a Lee Nielsen so, uh, shoulder plane, um, and I had it. I've never used it for tuning shoulders because I don't like it for that. I shouldn't say I never used it. I tried it for that task um, and then never went back to using it for that because I don't like it for that purpose. It just doesn't work for me. Um, I think you know those planes, shoulder planes for trimming shoulders were really designed for um, tenons that were cut on a table saw um, where you just want to trim things back a little bit. The problem that I find um, using a shoulder plane is that you have to lay the shoulder plane on its side on the cheek of the tenon. So if that cheek is not perfect, if it's not perfectly parallel with your um, with the face of the the leg or the style or whatever it is that you're the stretcher um, that you're you're using it on, if that cheek is not perfectly parallel to the face of that piece, then it's going to plane the tenon shoulder out of square. Um, and the other problem that I have with using a shoulder plane is that even if your cheek is parallel, it's going to make a perfectly flat square shoulder. Um, and that's great if there are absolutely no inaccuracies or, or any out of flat in the mating piece where the mortise is. But if there's any little bit of out of flat or, or inaccuracy in that mating piece, the shoulder's still not going to close right. So I prefer to undercut my shoulders with a chisel. Now, in your case, where you've got shoulders that um, didn't quite fit right, the best way that I find is to re-scribe those shoulders with the knife again um, and then just pair to that knife line with a chisel. Um, because that, that, to me, is telling you exactly where your cut needs to be, where your shoulder needs to be. So rather than just trying to go at it blindly by planing with a with the shoulder plane and testing the fit and seeing if it fits and then trying to you know figure out where else you need to take off material i find the easiest thing to do is go back to the knife in the square and rescribe that shoulder um, and then that gives you a knife line to put your chisel in put your chisel in that knife line and pair those shoulders then you can undercut them again um, and you should be good to go now keep in mind you're probably going to want to do that on the other parallel stretcher because you want those two stretchers to be the same length from shoulder to shoulder in the finished piece because that's going to help your piece come together square. So, um, But yeah, I would I would not buy a shoulder plane just for planing shoulders. Um, it, it makes an okay tool for trimming rabbits. Like if you, you, know, if you use a fence router plane, uh, rabbit plane to make a rabbit and you need to trim it down to a gauge line, maybe you didn't hit it quite right. Um, but even for that, I find the I found the Lee Nielsen shoulder plane really difficult to hold. I couldn't find a good way to grasp it because I'm so used to using wooden rabbit planes, and I like that kind of grip. So uh, I, I sold that Lee Nielsen uh, shoulder plane. My my plan um, is to replace it with a uh, a rabbit plane, just a square rabbit plane from from someone like Matt Bickford, um, a wooden rabbit plane, basically. Um, so yeah, and the, the skew rabbit block plane, you know, probably okay for true and cheeks, but you've already got the router plane for that, which is going to do a better job anyway, because it's going to make sure your tenon cheeks are parallel to the faces of the, the tenon stock. So it's going to do a better job for that. Um, as for using the skew rabbit block plane to, te to trim tenon shoulders. Now I think you're going to run into problems doing that. I think it's going to be more trouble. 
than it's worth, especially on something that's not as big as a workbench tenon shoulder. Uh, when you start getting into furniture work, that skew rabbit block plane is going to be very tough to use to trim tenon shoulders. So I would just rescribe with your square and your knife and pair it with a chisel. So our next question comes from Joe Leonetti. Joe says, my default choice to finish my projects is three to six coats of a two pound cut shellac, typically prepared fresh, then four out steel wool with wax. I'm using hand tools exclusively in my shop and mostly work with cherry and walnut. Depending upon when I last sharpen my smoothing plane, the wood surface is seeing an iron with an edge somewhere between 15,000 grit or fresh off the strop to 1,000 grit, which is my best guess at the uh, at the edge before I sharpen again. Do I need to sand my projects before I shellac? I've heard that roughening up the wood helps give the surface more bite, helping the shellac bind better. So, um, Joe, I think you're fine with what you're doing. I don't think you necessarily need to rough up the surface before you shellac. Shellac is pretty sticky stuff and, and binds to bare wood pretty well. So I don't think you need to rough up the surface to help the shellac bind better. Um, but you do, you do bring up a good question. Do you need to sand after hand planing? So here's my, my typical rule for sanding before finish versus hand planing before finish. Um, if I'm going to, if I'm, if I'm doing a project where I can hand plane all of the surfaces before I apply my finish, uh, let's say for example, like a shaker side table. So all of my surfaces are flat. I can, you know, plane the legs, then plane the aprons, then assemble all that. And everything's got a nice hand plane surface. Uh, I can plane the top and the bevels and everything. Everything's nice and flat, nice and straight, and I can hand plane everything. Then I will do my best to just hand plane everything before I apply a finish. On the other hand, if I've got a project where I can hand plane parts of it, but I can't plane everything. Um, let's take, for example, the, um, the panel gauge that I just made recently. So I could hand plane the beam uh, the long flat sections, but I really could not hand plane the uh, the curved sections of the fence. Um, or if you're you know if you're working on some kind of project that has some curved shapes, maybe you can't really plane that. Maybe you can scrape it, or use a spoke shave for part of it, and you have to scrape part of it. Any time that I have to mix my finish prep um, tools, if I've got to use a hand plane for some of it, scraper for some of it, spoke shave for some of it, maybe. Um, then I'm, I'm going to tend to sand before I finish. And the reason is just to even out the surface. So a hand plane surface does not take finish exactly the same as a sanded surface. So if I'm going to be applying a finish like a, like an oil, like a linseed oil, um, or hand rubbed oil, Danish oil, you know, something along those lines that's going to absorb into the wood, then I want to even out those surfaces before I apply any finish because the different surfaces, the hand plane surface versus the sanded surface are going to absorb those finishes a little bit differently, especially if you're dealing with color. Now I try not to apply color to the wood. If I can help it, I would rather use a wood that's the color that I want or that will age to the color that I want rather than applying stains and dyes. I don't really care for stains and dyes. Uh, they look, they just look too artificial to me. Um, 
So, but if you are going to apply a stain or a dye, you definitely want all of your surfaces to be hit with the same finish prep um, sequence. So if you're hand planing, hand plane all of your surface. If you can't hand plane everything and you have to sand some of those surfaces, then you should sand all of those surfaces before you apply any color. Because again, this, the sanded surface is going to absorb that finish and that color differently than your hand plane surface. Now, if all you're doing is applying a film finish, like a shellac, uh, then it really doesn't matter. Shellac, a polyurethane, you know, any uh, a lacquer, anything that's going to sit on the surface, it really doesn't make a difference. Because in the final piece, all you're really seeing is that, that film finish sitting on top of the wood. The, where it really matters is going to be those in the wood type finishes, like an oil finish that's not really building a film. Um, that's where you want to make sure you are, you know, doing the same thing to all your surfaces. If you're hand planing everything, hand plane everything. Or if you, if you've got to sand something, then sand everything. Um, but for the film finish, it really doesn't matter. You can sand some, hand plane some. As soon as you apply, you know, two, three, four coats of that film finish and you get a build on the surface, what you're seeing in the finished piece is the film finish. You're really not seeing any, um, you know, you're not really going to notice a difference between a hand plane surface and a sanded surface when you're using a film finish that's going to build on top of the piece. So our third question comes from Jeremy Conrad. Jeremy says, you mentioned web frames and dust panels in episode 35 on sliding dovetails. And I've seen web frames mentioned before, but I've never seen a cabinet built with web frames supporting the drawers. Can you go into more detail about their construction and installation? Also, do dust panels and web frame construction serve a purpose? I don't see how dust can settle between drawers. Speaking of drawers, how did period craftsmen make thin stock for drawer parts? Removing a quarter inch from a piece of wood by hand to make a half inch drawer side and bottom would take forever, wouldn't it? I attempted to remove three eighths of an inch off of a 14 inch wide piece of heavy five quarter cherry to make a one inch thick piece for a shelf. After 30 to 40 minutes of work with a jack plane, I had removed about three sixteenths of an inch. I needed three shelves, so I went down the road to a guy I know with a 20 inch planer and it was done in five minutes. Did lumber yards mill thinner stock back then? I feel like sawing three quarter instead of four quarter would save time and wood. So uh, we'll try to address your, your questions in order here, Jeremy. Uh, the first one, sliding uh, web frames. So if you look at any period chest of drawers, anything built before the Industrial Revolution, really, and even a lot of stuff shortly after the Industrial Revolution, and, but earlier furniture before we start to see um, metal slides, they're all done with web frames or you know dust frames or dust boards. Essentially what you have is you build your box, which is just a... You know, you build your case, your your carcass, which is just a box. In the sides of that carcass, you would typically have some dovetail, uh, not dovetails, dados. Not necessarily always. Some makers put dados in the sides, some didn't. Um, I tend to use dados because I think it helps keep the frames, the web frames a little bit straighter uh, and prevents some twisting. The frame itself is just like it sounds. It's a it's a frame. It's a mortise and tenon frame. So, what you would do is you would fit your front piece, your the front part of the frame to the carcass, 
And that's where your sliding dovetail is going to be. So if you can imagine, you've got this big box, this big carcass for a chest of drawers. Your drawer dividers might be a three-inch wide piece of primary wood, the same wood that you use for your case sides. You're going to cut sliding dovetails on the end of that that then fit into sliding dovetails cut in the carcass sides. And that sl the sliding dovetails in the front part of that web frame keep the front of the carcass from bowing out, keeps everything nice and square and held together. So once you've got that front part of that drawer divider or web frame um, fit with the sliding dovetails, you can remove it from the carcass. And then you're going to make some shallow mortises on the back side of it on the back edge that faces the inside of the um, inside of the case. Those mortises are going to receive the side pieces or, or rails or whatever you want to call them of the dust frame. The dust frame will have tenons front and back. So those side pieces will fit into mortises in the front part of the drawer divider and they will also sit in the dados in the case sides. And then the back part of the web frame or the um, drawer divider, again, has mortises in it, and it slides on to the tenons. Now, frequently, what would have been done is only the mortises, the front mortises, where the side drawer rails or of that web frame, where those rails, those tenons go into the front of the drawer divider, that would be glued. At the back, the... Um, the back piece would be left dry and in fact would not be quite as wide to bottom out on the shoulder of the drawer rails. And that was to allow for wood movement. And then typically when you assembled everything, you would slide the piece in from the front. The drawer rails or the sides of the web frame would ride in the dados in the sides of the carcass. The front of that drawer divider would have the sliding dovetails on it and that would lock into the case and then the back piece would just have the um, uh, the back of the, the frame which would ride dry. It would sit in the dados, the ends of it would sit in the dados, um, but the mortise and tenon wouldn't be glued. And then you could uh, nail or screw through the narrow edge of the drawer rails of the, the side pieces of the web frame into the carcass side that kept them in the dados so that they wouldn't pop out of the dados and so that the case sides wouldn't bow out but still allowed for some wood movement so a web frame is just that it's really it's basically a frame with sliding dovetails on the front inch of it so that the front part of the drawer divider could then lock itself into the carcass Dust boards would just be a web frame with a panel in the middle of it so that instead of just a, a big open frame between the drawers, you would actually have a solid panel between the drawers. And you're, you're right. I don't think the intended purpose of dust, dust boards, which are commonly called, is to prevent dust from settling between the drawers. I don't really see how dust would settle between the drawers. What I think they were more for was security because most old period chest drawers had locks. Each drawer would have a lock. So by putting a solid piece between um, the drawers instead of just an open frame, if you pulled one drawer out, you couldn't get to the contents of the drawer below it without unlocking that drawer. So I think it was more for security reasons than it was for dust. 
somehow along somewhere along the lines they got known as dust boards and that's just uh, how it stayed but i think it was more for security purposes so that if one drawer was removed you didn't have access to the drawer below it now in terms of stock preparation for drawers um, i actually find starting with um, for drawer sides if i'm looking to get down to like a three-eighths or a half-inch drawer side Starting with three-quarter inch stock from the home center is probably the best way to go uh, because you can hog off a quarter inch uh, of pine or poplar relatively quickly. And I tend to make most of my drawer sides um, out of a secondary wood like a pine or a poplar. I don't like to use really hard woods for drawer sides unless I'm building a reproduction of a piece that did so. Um, you know, there were a lot of Chester County and Pennsylvania pieces that used white oak for the sides of the drawers. So if I'm building, you know, a reproduction of something like that, then I will use white oak for those drawer sides. But you do make a good point. Um, in fact, lumber dealers, sawyers, uh, during the time did in fact sell thinner stock. We're used to getting four-quarter stock today. But if you go back and you look at old um, old historical writing on, on the subject, there actually were price lists. Um, and it, it, one good example actually is in, um, it's a book called The Joiner and Cabinet Maker. I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but um, it was a, an old book written by an anonymous author that was found by Joel Moskowitz of, of Tool for Working, Tools for Working Wood. And he and Christopher Schwarz uh, republished this book. And in the book, they have some examples of, of old plates, um, and Joel actually put one in from a, a lumber dealer during the uh, period. And they do, in fact, they did, in fact, offer lumber sawed to different thicknesses. You could buy half inch, you could buy three eighths, you could buy uh, five eighths, three quarter. You could buy your lumber sawn to different thicknesses. Now, of course, it was not necessarily always value added to do so you really would have had to balance the labor cost versus the cost of the material because lumber at the time was typically sold by the cut so regardless of whether it was a four quarter piece or an eight quarter piece oftentimes um, sawyers charged by the cut so if you had a log that you wanted sawn up if you sawed it up into you know, this, this, let's say the log was 12 inches in uh, across, and if you sawed that up into six pieces, six two-inch wide pieces, you would pay for the five cuts that it took to saw that into six pieces. If you had it sawn into four-quarter stock, into 12 pieces, you would pay for the 11 cuts that it would take to saw that piece into 12 pieces. So same amount of wood, you know, if you're providing the wood, but because you're paying per cut, you're, it's costing you more to get thinner stock. So you would have had to balance that against your need for the thinner stock. It, would it be worth it for you to pay almost twice the price for um, thinner stock versus getting it sawn thick and resawing it yourself if you only had a need for thinner stock once in a while? Um, but if you were buying your lumber and not bringing your, bringing your own lumber that you harvested yourself to a, a sawyer and you were buying lumber from a sawyer, um, you know, then in some cases it would have been worth it for you to buy, 
you know, half inch thick stock to make your drawer sides out of because it saved you a lot of work. You could just go pick some half, uh, some half inch rough sawn stock, hand plane it down to three eighths of an inch and your drawer sides are ready to go. So, uh, so yes, in fact, you could get lumber that was plain thinner during the period. Uh, once the industrial revolution came around, a lot of that need for thinner sawn lumber kind of went away with machines that could surface and, and, um, and thickness lumber. So that's when we start to see three quarter becoming, uh, the pretty much standard. So our last question for today comes from Robert Yanchik. He says, thank you for the podcast. I especially appreciated the recent episode on sliding dovetails. I have two questions. One, how do you know when a joint needs extra mechanical reinforcement and when it's overkill? For instance, if you have a shelf on a bookshelf, when can you get away with just a dado and when you need to reinforce it with a sliding dovetail or perhaps a mortise and tenon embedded within the dado? I can't think of too many examples of a dado that does not need to be reinforced. Can you talk about using sliding dovetails as a batten on the underside of a tabletop or blanket chest? Is this effective in helping keep the surface flat? I'm thinking of building an architect's drafting table and want to do what I can to keep the top as flat as possible, taking into account the inevitable wood movement. So, Robert, I'll, I'll address your questions in reverse, actually. Um, battens, sliding dovetail battens on the other side of a tabletop would certainly be uh, very useful. Uh, they would definitely allow for wood movement, and if that's a, um, a look that you like and... and Something that you want to to uh, to do, I would say definitely go for it because it's going to it definitely will help to keep that wide top flat um, while still allowing for seasonal wood movement. Um, and we do see that once in a while, especially um, in a lot of simpler uh, medieval furniture, you know, uh, Renaissance type furniture, 1400s, 1500s, uh, before we start to get into tables with with uh, wide aprons. Uh, we do see furniture that would have, you know, maybe a sliding dovetail batten, uh, like a table, like a dining table with a long sliding dovetail batten led into the bottom of it, cross grain, and then legs just kind of staked through it. Um, so yeah, it, it was certainly a common thing in, uh, in medieval furniture. And, uh, and it's certainly just as useful today. So I say definitely go for it. Um, in terms of, what was your other question here? Oh, me mechanical reinforcement. Um, a lot of times it comes down to, you know, your personal view of how the piece is going to be used. Um, I'll give you an example, you know, for, for when I make doors for cabinetry or, or things like that, um, I almost always mechanically reinforce the mortise and tenons somehow, whether it's with a draw bore or if I make through mortise and tenons, I'll wedge them from the end grain. Um, and that is because, you know, by itself, the mortise and tenon is still a very strong joint with, you know, just glue. But if and when that glue does fail, the mechanical reinforcement is going to help. Um, dados for a bookshelf, I would definitely reinforce those. In fact, um, what I would typically do if I'm making a, a bookshelf would be to toenail the shelves through the inside of the case. So the bottom, the bottom of the shelf, uh, would get toenailed through the, through the shelf and into the case side in the dado. And that's going to do two things. That's going to help keep that, 
shelf from sliding front to back, and it's also going to keep the case sides from pulling away from the dado um, and, have, and that shelf from falling out. A sliding dovetail would do the same thing. The nails are just a, an easier, faster way to do it, um, and since they're not seen anyway, being underneath the shelf really doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Um, in period chests of drawers, like I mentioned before, you would often find the sides of the web frames either nailed or screwed into the sides of the carcass because, again, the dado itself is not providing a whole lot of structural um, integrity side to side. It's providing a lot of weight bearing front to, uh, top to bottom, right? So it, it, it really helps the frame stay straight and hold the weight of what's in the drawer. But it doesn't keep those drawer sides from pulling, uh, sorry, the case sides from bowing out away from the web frame. So the nail or nails or screws would certainly help with that. Uh, another way I have reinforced things like a bookshelf uh, would be by putting the back on. Uh, once you have the back on the bookshelf, um, it adds a lot of rigidity. And I will typically drive nails through the backboards of that bookcase into each one of those shelves. And again, that helps to, uh, to keep things from pulling away, from moving around. It helps to, to support the shelf so it doesn't sag. Um, so it really comes down to uh, personal preference in a lot of cases, but also, how, again, how you see that piece being used. If you see the joint being stressed a lot, then that might be a situation where you might want to add some mechanical reinforcement to the joint. Um, if it's just, you know, let's say like a, a picture frame that's going to hang on the wall, not support a lot of weight, well then the simple mortise and tenon or a simple miter joint might be just fine without any kind of reinforcement because you're not really going to be stressing the joint at all. But in any situation where uh, I'm building a piece that is where I'm going to be stressing the joint, then I will almost always mechanically reinforce that joint somehow. So that's all the questions I have for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is on working with reclaimed or salvaged wood. Um, and it, it probably won't be a long discussion because... Uh, you know, I I have some opinions on the subject and and uh, a few few uh, pretty simple recommendations, but uh, but all in all, I don't have a, a ton to say about it. But it's a question I do get from time to time. You know, people want to know um, what to look out for and 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 how to go about working with with salvaged or reclaimed wood. So uh, I thought it might be a, a good topic for discussion. So. You know, the first thing I always mention to folks, though, is to to pick your wood uh, carefully. You know, there's there's good reclaimed wood and there's bad reclaimed wood. Um, and when I talk about bad reclaimed wood, I'm thinking about things like, you know, any wood that's rotted or punky, um, you're not likely to get any much usable material out of a board that's rotted or punky. Uh, you might have to cut a lot of it away, and it may just not be worth the effort. Um, and more importantly, things like, like 
pallets, uh, you know, things that, that I consider really not worth the effort. Um, I know pallets are a, a, a big thing. You know, they were a big fad for a long time. Uh, maybe they still are. I don't know. I'm not really up on those things. But, you know, I know there was a there was one point where someone on Instagram actually posted a, a picture um, of a display shelf, one of the shelves in a, a Hobby Lobby store, and they were selling a pallet, which was obviously, you know, made for uh, made for sale. It wasn't an actual reclaimed pallet, um, but it was like a Hobby Lobby store and they were selling pallets on the shelf for like $60 a piece, um, which I just think is absolutely hilarious. But, um, you know, in terms of, of reclaiming the wood from pallets, um, it's something that I, I recommend you really avoid. If, if you work primarily with hand tools, it's really not worth the effort. Um, you know, I like to tell my, uh, my students and, and when I do seminars and introduction to hand tools seminars, um, one of the things that I bring up, you know, is, uh, is to think about the wood that you're going to be using. And, and, you know, pallet wood to me is used for pallets because it really wasn't suitable to use for anything else. Um, most pallet wood is the, is the junkiest wood, <laughs> the, the junkiest of junky woods. Um, so there's reasons it was used for pallets and it's because it wasn't fine enough to use for anything else. Um, so, and once you start putting the spiral shank and ring shank nails into it and it becomes a royal pain to get apart and boards start splitting and it's just really not worth the effort. Um, especially if you primarily work with hand tools, um, it's not, it's not even worth it. So, um, I would say definitely choose your reclaimed wood carefully, you know, avoid rotted wood, avoid things like pallets, because you're just going to waste a whole lot of time, um, working for a material that is really substandard and not worth the effort. On the other hand, there is some, you, there are some, some good reclaimed wood that you can get. Uh, one of the examples that I use is, um, like old chestnut or heart pine that you can get from beams of, of old barns. Um, there are people who specialize in taking down old barns and old factories and things like that and, uh, and salvaging and reclaiming the wood. And they know, they usually know what they're looking for. And that wood is usually, you know, decent wood. Um, I've got a barn, I don't want to say a barn full, but I've got a good pile of old wormy chestnut boards, um, that were in a barn in the barn that, uh, came with our property. And, uh, at first glance, they're, you know, they're not all the best looking. I'm, I'll have to cut off some, some bad edges and things, but you know, this is a wood that you can't get anymore. There's no other way to get chestnut except by finding reclaimed lumber. The chestnut trees are all dead. They were killed by the blight, you know, eons ago, um, you know, 50 years ago, hundred years ago. And, uh, and we just can't get chestnut anymore. So, you know, that's one of those woods that definitely is worth it to, to use if you can have access to it. And even I would say, go so far as to say it's one of those woods that's even worth it to seek out. If you can find it, um, on, you know, on Craigslist or, or whatever, somebody getting rid of a, an old pile of, of chestnut beams from an old barn or siding boards from an old barn, whatever. Um, it's a, it's a beautiful wood. It works really nicely with hand tools. You know, you just have to be careful. Um, you know, a few things to look out for, and we'll talk about those in a little bit. Um, heart pine is another one. 
you know, you can't get a whole lot of heart pine anymore because the trees grow so fast. You know, you don't get a lot of, of good old growth heart pine. Um, that's a good wood to look for reclaimed. Um, another place to look for old, for, for decent reclaimed wood is old furniture. Uh, people will oftentimes, you know, on bulk pickup days in the trash, throw out old pieces of furniture. You can find some decent wood in old furniture that people are throwing out. Now, of course, a lot of what you're going to find is particle board and MDF that's painted to look like wood. Um, but every once in a while, you might find a little gem. Um, you can find some nice beach because a lot of factory furniture used beach and then stained it or, or colored it to look like something else. Um, I found mahogany, people who were throwing out an old piece of furniture and, and it was, you know, solid mahogany or solid walnut. Um, so you can certainly, you know, salvage and, and reclaim wood that way and get some decent wood, um, in the process. So if you're going to do this though, there's a, there's a couple things you probably want to look out for and, and a couple of tools that you should probably have. Uh, the first uh, is probably a, a good idea to pick up a metal detector. Old barn beams, um, old factory beams, things like that are, are going to have nails in them. They could have staples in them or screws. Um, you don't want to hit those with any of your tools. Um, and a lot of times they could be embedded and not easily visible. The surfaces of a lot of this reclaimed lumber are oftentimes dirty and grungy. Um, so you don't want to start hand planing that down or throwing it through a power planer, not knowing if there's a, a nail, you know, somewhere bedded in there that maybe the head broke off. So you can't really see it. Um, and it's got some grunge over the nail hole. So it's sort of filled in and, and then you hit that with your hand planer, you hit that with your, your power planer and uh, chip one of the knives. So, you know, I would recommend if you're going to try to salvage lumber or use work with reclaimed lumber, get yourself a, a metal detector and, uh, and check all your boards before you start planing them um, just to make sure there's no metal in there. And you may still end up finding some, um, you know, that's deep below the surface that the metal detector doesn't pick up. But, you know, even a cheap metal detector will help save you uh, some heartache by, you know, finding staples and, and uh, old fence nails and whatever, um, you know, that might be hidden in that wood that you don't, don't see right away. The second thing that I would recommend would be a, a really stiff bristle brush. Um, whether it's a wire brush or a nylon brush doesn't really matter. I tend to use a metal wire brush. Um, and it's really to get all the dirt and the grit and the sand or as much as you can out of these pieces. Oftentimes, reclaimed wood was thrown uh, on the ground. Uh, it might have been sitting on the ground in a barn um, or it might have been up in a loft of a barn where animals were, you know, defecating on it and um, building birds' nests and, and uh, rodents building nests in it or whatever. So the the wood tends to have a lot of sand and grit and dirt in it and you don't want all that silica grinding up against your tools so um, i would say you know get yourself a nice stiff bristle brush so that you can brush off the majority of the dirt and the sand and the silica and all those things that are going to scratch up your tools scratch up your planes and uh, and chip your chip your blades the uh, you know that stuff's pretty abrasive and uh will will definitely 
uh, put some chips in your blades, especially if you hit a small pebble or stone or or a piece of sand or something like that. Um, and then there's the the question of defects. You know, what do you do with them? You can, you know, things like nail holes, worm holes. Uh, maybe there's a little trail from a carpenter bee or something in there. So, um, how do you deal with those? Um, you know, a lot of times they they kind of pop up in places that you aren't expecting, um, especially when you're working with something like chestnut, which you know will have a lot of wormholes and things in it. Um, and a lot of times they'll kind of pop up on you. You'll be planing along and you'll get a nice smooth surface, and you'll take one more pass with that hand plane, and you open up a wormhole. Um, so what do you do with them? Well. The easiest thing to do is just to leave them alone um, and chalk it up to the character of the wood. And I tend to do that quite often when I'm working with something like wormy chestnut, because that character, that the those wormholes and, and things like that, really give that chestnut some character and, and charm. Um, and it's a popular thing to do for you know rural pieces, country pieces, things like that. Um, if you are not the type that is is okay with leaving wormholes and leaving nail holes and things like that. Um, you've got a couple options. The first thing is to cross cut your pieces and, or cross cut and rip your pieces around those defects so that you're cutting them out. You're certainly going to waste a lot more wood this way um, because you're you know you're not going to be able to use those pieces with the wormholes or the nail holes and things in them. Um, but you know, if if you're reclaim, if you're you're salvaging the wood and you're not paying for it anyway, maybe you don't mind, um, you know, wasting more of that wood. Um, the other thing is the thing that you can do is to fill them put, with some kind of filler. Uh, you can use a, a regular old wood filler from the home center. There are wood fillers, specialty wood fillers sold by woodworking suppliers. Uh, things like shellac sticks that kind of melt in to uh, to fill those those defects, and you can get them in different colors to match whatever kind of finish you're going to put on your piece. Um, epoxy is another option for filling. You can tint epoxy with uh, with different types of pigment. You can get artist pigments in powdered form and add them to clear epoxy to give the epoxy some color. Um, and you can, you know, you can uh, dye that epoxy to match just about any color that you're going to finish a piece. So that's an option. Um, the only thing that I, I tend to recommend you watch out with, with with most fillers, you know, whether it's epoxy or shellac sticks or whatever, is that most of them don't take color. So in, in a lot of cases, you may want to wait until after your piece is finished to apply that um, filler so that you can try to match the color as best as possible. Um, or if you're going to fill before you finish your project, Use a colored top coat like a toner, a lacquer-based toner or something like that, a top coat, a film finish that has color to it, and that will cover up the wood filler and help to blend it with the rest of the piece um, rather than trying to apply a stain or a dye because epoxy and most wood fillers um, are you know, not going to take the stain, a stain or a dye uh, if they take it at all, they're not going to take it as well as the wood, and it's it's going to stand out. But by using a toner that you put on over top or a glaze, um, you can kind of blend that area in and cover it up, and, and uh, it could look pretty nice. Uh, plugs or patches are another another option. Um, 
you know, you might be able to patch in a piece of veneer that looks very close, you know, and get a nice grain match. Um, or the other option is to draw attention to that plugger patch by using a completely contrasting piece of wood, maybe putting in a, a butterfly key or, you know, if you, if you have to support a, a crack in a piece that you don't want to keep splitting, you put in a butterfly key or two or, um, you know, just, just patch in a, put in a plug or patch in a piece of another colored piece of wood and make it look like a knot or something like that. Um, you know, and that's another way that you can, you can address some, uh, some defects. Um, in terms of finding salvaged woods, um, you know, if you're, if you live in the city areas and the, and the suburbs, it can be a little bit more difficult. Um, you can look, there are some cities where, um, you know, they, they have places that specialize in this and, and guys that go out and specifically look for all this old wood um, and they resell it. Um, if you live in a more rural area like I do, you can find a lot of reclaimed and salvaged woods um, on places like Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace a lot of the time. Someone might be taking down an old barn um, or an old, you know, old outbuilding of some sort that was on their property. Um, and, you know, if that building was built long enough ago, the whole thing could have been built out of, you know, oak or, or chestnut or heart pine. You just never know. Um, and a lot of them will will either sell the lumber very cheap or some of them will uh, will just give it away if you're willing to come and, and uh, put in the labor to, to take down the building or the barn or whatever. So, uh, you know, keep your eye on, uh, on Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace and things like that. Um, and if you're willing to drive from the uh, the suburbs or the city out to a little more rural area, you can uh, you know certainly find uh, plenty of plenty of deals on on salvaged wood. All in all, I don't use a lot of salvaged or reclaimed wood myself, um, but when I do, I try to to make it something special, um, you know, and it'll be something from uh, you know from from someone's old barn. Or, uh, you know, it, the wood has to be something. I'm, I don't typically go out and just try to find any old wood um, just to save money on, on wood. I would rather spend some money on decent quality wood um, because I find it more enjoyable to work that way than to than to put in a lot of work for, you know, readily available woods that, um, you know, I could buy for, for 4 or $5 a board foot. Um, and not have to put in a lot of work to uh, to get that lumber. But every once in a while, you know, you'll find some lumber that's really worth saving. Um, again, going back to you know the chestnut or the heart pine. Um, and if you uh, if you get a chance to uh, to rescue some of that old that old wood that you just can't get anymore, um, that is, in my opinion, definitely uh, worth the trip. So uh, so you know, keep your eyes out do it for this week's show as always i want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support none of this would be possible as a reminder please send in your feedback questions and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com you can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact if you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt037. 
In the show notes, you can find any links that I refer to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.